What's the game-changing realization that helped you build a high-performing team? That question is at the center of every episode of the HR Impact Show. Every HR professional wants to build a team that has empowered managers, engaged employees, and an organization that's striving to become elite. The challenge is that you're often told to do more with less. We're gonna fix that. Every week, we will feature executive and senior HR leaders from across the country, and they will share with us their actionable insights and best practices that can help empower you to create an engaged elite workforce. Here's the show. Thanks for joining us today on the HR Impact Show. This is your friendly neighborhood talent strategy nerd, Dr. Jim. Our understanding of organizational effectiveness is fundamentally broken. We've created organizations that are overly layered and the preferred organizational work styles don't meet the needs of the modern workforce. Know your role and staying in your lane can lead to a stifling environment that doesn't foster collaboration. That's the argument that Ingrid Wallace makes. So what's Ingrid's story? There's a lot here, so buckle up. Ingrid's been a C-suite coach. She's a professional speaker. She's a transformational leader. She's helped leaders grow in emotional intelligence, executive presence, and she's served a number of Fortune 100 clients throughout the U.S., Canada, Germany, and the U.K. She's the creator and developer of Leadership Dynamics, an innovative and highly acclaimed HRD program designed to resolve the issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion in organizations with ethnically diverse populations. She's also spent quite a bit of time as an adjunct faculty member of the Wisconsin School of Business at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, where she's taught team building, communication, and conflict resolution. Ingrid, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Dr. Jim. Great to be here. I'm pumped to uh, have this conversation with you because I think you bring a pretty unique lens to the conversation. And uh, particularly your experience in uh, organizational turnarounds as well as executive coaching, I think both of those taken together are going to have a lot of runway when it comes to building elite teams and what you've learned from it. Share a little bit with the listeners on some of the things that I left out of your background and bio that you feel are going to be important for them to know and understand about you. And that's going to inform our conversation that we're going to have today. I did start in organizational effectiveness and training, and I worked with organizations that were huge, as you well know, probably in Fortune 100s you've known about for some time. I spent eight years with McDonald's. I was the first person ever to have sold and taught programs in the Walt Disney Company from the outside in their history. I was the first person to, as a consultant to Ford Chrysler General Motors at the same time. They usually compete with each other, don't like to share consultants, but I was the first person ever to have done that. And as I have gone through organizations and watched them grow and watched them function, it's amazing how the similarities and the flaws are so similar. It's just amazing to see that they don't function very well because they don't trust their people very much. You've already said something there that I want to latch into, and that's, that's this idea of regardless of how different the organizations are, or how big or small they are, there's a lot of things that are similar about the dysfunctions that show up. Now, the thing that I'm curious about is with your background in working with Fortune 100 organizations, was there anything that caught you by surprise, good or bad, working in those environments that you didn't expect? Yeah, when I went to work with Walt Disney, I was very excited about that, by the way, because I'm a two-year-old at heart. And I went in there and they asked me, the first thing they asked me to do was critique their orientation program and conduct some training sessions for managers. And I did that in five divisions for them. And the thing that struck me 
was that they were treating their employees, their frontline employees, like customers. And I thought that was really interesting. They provided them with whatever they needed to make sure that the customers were satisfied and thus creating very high-performance teams. People don't go to Walt Disney and they hear about team members all the time, but they don't realize it's a high-performance team, which is really fascinating. And it fascinated me so much. I started to delve into it and try to figure out what made it work. I found out that they were empowering the first, the frontline employees, empowering them so that they were confident, they could face any customer, and they could do one of the two things that customers expect. They could, number one, answer a simple question, or number two, make a simple decision. And that was fascinating for me. They showed that the employee was the most important part of the organization, which is quite the converse in most organizations. They don't feel that way. I, I want to dig into that area just a little bit more. When you say these are large organizations, they empowered employees at the front lines to either answer a simple question or make a decision. And in a broader sense, they treated their frontline employees as customers. Tell us a little bit more about how that actually showed up in practice. How was that embedded in the onboarding process? How does that show up? Something as simple as during orientation. One of the things they'd say is when you come into your workplace every day, you will greet your teammate. You will say good morning. You will say hello. That is not an option. And if it doesn't happen, it's as though it's a performance issue. So there were things that were sacrosanct about the way they treated one another. They had to treat one another like customers. So the actual customer would know how to feel, how they would make the actual customer feel. And I thought that was incredible. I'd never seen anything like it. It's interesting you mentioned something so small as that, and it reminds me of the onboarding process that I went through early in my career when I was at Enterprise. One of the core principles at Enterprise was you choose your attitude. And that was a frame of reference that showed up in, in a lot of different ways in how you treated your customers. And mm -hmm. they were consistently priding themselves as an organization that led with customer service first. So I think, mm -hmm. I, I think I see some parallels there. That's some really good, good context. You mentioned that McDonald's was slightly, was similar, but different. What was unique about the McDonald's experience that, that you can share with us today? The McDonald's experience was a little more automated. It was a little more analytical. It was lots and lots of instructions and manuals and, but they all boil down to the same thing. And that is that person at the time, that person at McDonald's was pushing that bag across the counter understood how important it was to say, thank you for coming to McDonald's, smile, et cetera. It, made, it makes the customer feel smart. If you can make your customer feel smart, they will come back. When you go to a restaurant and somebody tells you the food is wonderful and you say it was terrible and they say, if you'd only been there on Wednesday. But it's the consistency that is created in these organizations and in the way that customers are treated. And one of the things that I learned at Walt Disney and I've used for years afterwards is that I call it an upside down pyramid, that the people who are serving the customer are at the top, but the line is at the top and the bottom of the pyramid or the top of the pyramid is at the bottom. The CEOs at the bottom and the frontline employees are at the top because those people are so important because they have the information that the customers give them about what they want and how they want it. So we're going to dig into that concept in a little bit. You've been in this space in the organizational development space. You've been in executive coaching and leadership development for a while. When you look at all the different experiences that you've had throughout your career, what's the achievement that you're most proud of 
The thing I'm most proud of, Jim, is being able to take what I've learned and help it create better organizations, help it create better leaders. I see it all the time. I have leaders that I spend time with and they come back and tell me things like, I took myself out of 100 meetings last year after our coaching. They say things like, I have a person who I thought was impossible to keep. And the CEO tells me, I don't know what happened to that individual, but now they are a functioning part of the team. And it's just things that I've learned. I get to sound really smart because I get to deal with very smart people. And, and I learn as I go. I'm, I'm curious about why the specific example of took myself out of 200 meetings stood out to you. What was it about that that really led to a turnaround in that particular leader's experience? The leader had a global team and that global team was very high functioning. They all had PhDs. They were from Stanford and IIT and Yale and Caltech and places like that. It was a scientific organization performing a very basic function, but they needed it. It involves chemicals and they're being organic about everything. And so that leader, I think, was a little intimidated by all of the knowledge in that team. But that leader spent an inordinate amount of time trying to figure out what they knew. When you come back from a, when you come back from a seminar, tell me, share with me what you heard, share with me what you learned. And that leader wanted to learn what they'd learned. And I asked him at one point, I said, aren't you the executive vice president? And he said, yes. So then why do you feel you have to know what they know? Why is that? And he said, I don't know. I said, you don't need to know what they know. You just need to know what they do and be able to direct them to do it to the best of their ability. And that resonated with him. And he proudly told me that he took himself out of 200 uh, meetings the next year. You asked the question, why do you feel you need to know what they know? You just need mm -hmm. to be able to know what they do. Why yeah. is that distinction important when we're thinking about leadership effectiveness in general? I think they are concerned with whether or not they are imposters in that role, who knows more than they do. And it doesn't matter. You want people who know more than you do, ideally. You want people that are smarter than you. They have to make that okay. And unfortunately, it's not okay with many leaders. It really isn't. So my job as a coach is to help individuals understand that it is okay to have someone smarter working for you because they make you look good. Whenever I'm hired somewhere, I, I know that my job is to make that leader look good. And if I've done that, I've done my job. So I think that I try to emphasize that as much as possible. It's a leader's job to make the organization look good. If you worry about yourself looking good, you're in trouble. Yeah, that's a good distinction. And I think the other aspect uh, of what you're talking about that I think is important to mention is that leaders are responsible for clearing the way for their people to actually execute at a high level. So mm -hmm. if you're too worried about you looking good, you're losing the fundamental purpose of, of your job in that role as a leader is to get the most out of the team that you have. The other thing that I'm curious to get your input on and we touched on one aspect of it just, just a second ago when we were talking about what is the fundamental responsibility of a leader. But the other thing that I'm curious about is when you're thinking about the myths that exist about leadership, about HR, what's the myth that you wish would just go away? The myth that should go away about leaders, that they know everything. You know, they really don't need to know everything. And there are so many hangups. When you find a leader that's, quote unquote, behaving badly, it's usually because they don't know something and won't admit it. And you don't need to know everything. If you have people that, smart people that work for you, 
You don't need to know everything. You'd be amazed at the number of leaders that don't do well because they're hung up on that. You make a really good point about whenever there is dysfunction within a team, it's usually driven from a leader lacking some knowledge or lacking lacking information about something that's going on within their organization or some competence in some areas that they don't have. If that's left unchecked, what are some of the things that can happen that senior leaders and executives need to watch out for? I have several examples that are very similar with leaders that I've coached, executives that I've coached at a very high level. Many times they stifle the best members of the team. They are not accepting the knowledge. They are not allowing them to lead subsequent team members and they lose people. Jim, I cannot tell you how many folks have complained to me about the leadership and they leave and those leaders are eventually gone. They're gotten rid of, but not before they've lost an amazing team. And I find that very frustrating, very frightening. So most of the time I find myself in an organization and if I run across some dysfunctional teams, this is the reason. So how do I coach them to remain in there? Because one of my philosophies is everyone knows what kind of job you do. When I have classes and I'm teaching executives, I'll tell them, I'll say, who does a good job? I'll have them mention, and they'll tell me this person does a good job. Why do they do a good job? They will tell me that. And that's great. And when I go through a list of all of the people who are done great jobs and why, I turn around and I say, you know what? I could just as easily have asked you who does a bad job. And you could have told me. Everybody knows what kind of job you do. So when you have a dysfunctional leader, people know they're dysfunctional. It's usually just a matter of time. But in the meantime, what happens to the talent? So high-performing teams are allowed to be who they are. They're allowed to know what they know. They're allowed to share their knowledge, share their expertise, and get the job done. That's a good illustration that you're bringing out. The other thing that I'm curious about when you look at leaders, quote-unquote, behaving badly, I've never had a problem saying that I don't know something. There's a lot mm -hmm. of stuff that I don't know. What do you think gets in the way of a lot of these leaders when it comes to not being able to say that they don't know something? That comes from the expectation that the boss concept, who's supposed to know everything, be able to do everything, be in charge and control of everything. But that does not work in this day and age. This workforce won't stand for it. This workforce comes most times with a great deal of knowledge and they don't need a boss. They need a leader. They need someone who can give them direction, someone who will be efficient with and effective with their time and their talents and let them do their job. Wow, it's been a great conversation so far. Make sure you join the HR Impact community where we gather a community of HR leaders just like you. This is a space where top people leaders share actionable insights and practical playbooks. Sign up today as a member for the community, get updates on the latest HR resources and exclusive event invites. You can join the community at www.engagerocket.co slash HR impact. And now back to the show. So that gives us a great lead in to what I opened the show with. And your point about the modern workforce doesn't need a boss, they need a leader. One of the things that I mentioned early on in the conversation was that our understanding of what it takes to be a high performance organization, to be a highly effective organization is fundamentally broken. We've created organizations that are layered, that have work styles that are archaic. How does that tie into the game-changing realization that you had that's necessary for building high-performance teams? First of all, you're hiring people who are highly skilled and highly knowledgeable, and they're experts. And we have to let experts be experts. It's not that they don't need guidance. 
And I'm a performance management person. So we need to have the kinds of systems in place that let you manage people's performance while they are committed to producing. They know what the job is. They know how they're going to be evaluated and they go about doing it. But too many times we do not have the follow through. We tell people what to do and we don't have a system to evaluate them in such a way that it grows them instead of stifles them. So I think that's really important. So one of the things that you had mentioned earlier on is that the way a lot of organizations look at how the work is done, how teams are managed, they're set up the wrong way. And you describe it from the perspective of an upside down pyramid. Tell us a little bit more about how that ties into your follow-up and empowerment model of, uh, of how an organization should be structured. Many organizations that I go into when, when they're in need of some structure, I talk about the fact that the CEO should be at the bottom. That's the person with the resources. The most important person is on that front line. They are interacting with the individual or individuals who are telling that business what they want and need. And that person is able to convey that information to the top, which is at the bottom of the pyramid, I might add, to the CEO who has all of the resources. So the resources can then be sent to the front line so they can do what, what that customer needs to do, needs to have done, I should say. And it's really been effective with a lot of organizations with whom I have worked because it's a different way of thinking. It's a paradigm shift. And I've had people say, but my boss, I'm, my boss is my customer. I said, no, you are the boss's customer because you need, a customer is anyone who needs from you a product, a service, information, authority, or resources. In order to give the ultimate customer what they want, you need from that boss information, authority, or resources. So consequently, you're the customer. And it goes, it goes laterally, it goes down, it goes up, it goes in all different directions. When you think about that organizational structure that needs to be shifted, what's the relationship between how those are constructed now mm -hmm. and one of the common problems that exists within a lot of organizations is that the closer to you get to the front line, the more disconnected those frontline employees are from mm -hmm. the broader purpose of what the company is trying to do. Is there a connection there? First of all, I've drafted mission statements for many organizations, including divisions of places like McDonald's and University of Chicago, a lot of different places. And the mission is who you are, what you do, and the spirit in which you do it. And the frontline people need to understand that. But nobody's communicating it to them. Nobody's telling them why they're doing what they're doing. Nobody's telling them uh, what the philosophy of the company is. I worked with Enterprise, as you well know. As a consultant for 17 years, I trained 11,000 leaders in Enterprise and coached many of them. And everybody knew what that mission was. Under promise, over deliver. Under promise, over deliver. Anybody could tell you that. Disney knows we're the happiest place on earth. It doesn't have to be deep, but it has to be understood and manifested in some way. And if you give your employees the opportunity to manifest it, they'll produce, but you have to believe that they can. That's what a high-performing team is about. You have to believe in that team. You know what they're capable of. You have discussed what they're able to do and how you'll evaluate them, and then let them go do it. That makes sense. I think one of the things that's challenging, especially in large organizations, is that you have so many layers of leadership between the front line and everywhere in between that messages get muddled and unclear. So how right. do you solve for that in a large organization? How do you bridge that gap where you don't lose it in translation from the top down? 
I think that you create your own organization. You create that within divisions. You can do that in organizations where it's much more efficient. I watched Walt Disney do it when they found out that, and I was, that's when I was there, when they found out the movies were really the tail wagging the dog. And that's where all the money was. So all of a sudden, there was a plethora of movies coming out of Disney, just a ton of them. And what they did was they made smaller studios. It was Buena Vista Studios. There was uh, Walt Disney Pictures. There was, and they've since bought things like Pixar. And they were smaller organizations with fewer layers. So the individuals on the front lines could get information from people they were dealing with, the customers, and get that information to the people with resources very quickly because there were very few layers. In most organizations, people on the front line have the information, but it gets shunted away, it gets changed, eliminated, bastardized, yet everything else before it ever gets to the folks with the resources to solve the problems on the front lines. And at the same time, people at the top of the organization, they send resources down and never makes it to where it should be. The individuals dealing with the customers, trying to get them what they need. So I've seen divisions and organizations, some divisions do it brilliantly and others don't have a clue. So it just depends on the leader. When you're looking at effectively getting those resources where they belong, what are some of the things that you've seen leaders do really well that helps that occur? They start, they have effective meetings. They can, I, they help team members identify, you know, what their limits are, how they are going to approach customers. People know what they're going to do and how they're going to do it. I have a delegation tool that I use and it tells people if I have these, if I have something on the list of things I need to do, what is the authority I have to do it? Can I have authority level number one? Do I just do it? Authority level number two, do I do it in report, act in report? Authority level number three, do I act after consultation? Authority level number four, do I wait to be told what to do? It takes the games out of people when they're delegated to, when they have a job to do. They know where they are. If they are at the bottom of that, they're level number four. You can expect them to be in 60 days at level number three, in 90 days at level number two. They are growing. They are buying more time for you as a leader. They know how they're going to be evaluated. You can say in 60 days, you were, and for this skill level or for this part of your job, you're at level number three. Now you're at level number two. That meets requirements. That exceeds requirements. People know how they're going to be evaluated and they can constantly make a decision about their own career and their own job. So it sounds like by rethinking how we structure organizations, there's some really tangible benefits that leaders can get. We often hear senior and executive leaders complain about how they're constantly in firefighting mode. And while we hear that complaint, we also know that the lowest resourced leaders within the organization are typically your line level leaders. There's not really much in terms of investment that happens there. Mm -hmm. And yet you have senior leaders complaining about firefighting all the time, being pulled into the sort of quote unquote low value things. But then when it comes to investment in developing those line level leaders, you hear crickets. That's Why right. does that di disconnect exist and what can be done at an organizational level to solve that? Because it seems that the payoff would be pretty big and, and pretty impactful. And yet you have organization after organization that refuse to invest at that level. If you invest in your senior leaders and give them a better picture as to what an organization could be, should they choose to change 
and choose to put their emphasis on development and developing their folks, I think we'd be better off. We'd be better off. The organizations that need it won't get it. People ask me all the time, how do you have a client list like that? It's just, just astounding the clients you've been able to have over the years. I learned early on, Jim, that the ones who are the best clients, the best companies, they want every opportunity to develop someone. They want every opportunity to look at new and better information so their folks could do better. The ones who really need it don't want to hear it. But the best organizations are always looking for opportunities to grow their people. We've talked a little bit about how organizational structure and leadership needs to be reimagined or at least thought about differently. And we talked a, a little bit about what that involves. I think the thing that's going to be really useful to understand is how do you get started in shifting this way of thinking and how leadership needs to show up and really empowering the front line? When I talk to leaders about it, they look at me very skeptically, but then they say, how do we do that? And I said, how do you know what your folks are capable of? And how can I put it? There's a simple formula that I found out about working with um, a major global organization. I was talking to a, a senior leader who said, I can't make it to the top of this place. I just can't get to the top. And I've done everything. And I said, what's everything? I've I've performed. I've done what I was supposed to do. I've done what I was asked. And I said, why are you, what are you asking them? I'm asking them to bring me up in the organization, to give me a promotion. And I said, what about the people who work for you? And they said, my people are good. They're fine. I said, understand this. People at the top of the organization are not going to pull you up. People who work for you are going to push you up. They're going to push you up. If you are doing what you need to do as a leader, these folks that are on the front line, that are doing everything you need for them to do. But if they're doing it, people are going to notice. Remember I said, everybody knows the kind of job you do. You're going to float to the top because they pushed you up. And this is a concept I, sh I share with many executives. And it's one of the things to help them get it. And because then they tell me, they share with me, yeah, you're right. I'm not looking for somebody who keeps asking me to promote them. I'm looking for somebody who has demonstrated to me that the folks working for them are growing and they are being promoted and they're bringing value to this organization. And if somebody can prove to me they're doing that, I'll promote them. I like what you mentioned about your people will push you up to that next level. And at the risk of oversimplifying it, what are the things that you should be doing as a leader to make sure that your people are positioned to push you up? First of all, you need to understand what it is they do they should know how they're going to be evaluated. I could say that over and over again. I'm a performance management person. I really am. And I have one person who said to me, I have a person who went out, who works for me, who went out and gave a talk to a global team. And I was not prepared with what he said. I, I couldn't believe he said it. And I said, why didn't you know what he was going to say in the first place? Why is your emphasis on getting promoted when it should be on this person, on your team? who's going out to do something that's important and you are not monitoring what he's going to say or, or you're not familiar with it or helping this individual with the message. That's your real job. Developing people is your job. Tom Peters has a new book called Extreme Humanism. And he says that leadership is achieved by an excessive, I believe he says, an obsessive focus with the growth of the people you're leading. So if people are obsessed with the growth of those folks, they're not going to have any problems. You know, what areas they need to grow? What is it? They, do they need training? Do they need information? Do they need 
space to prove themselves? What is it that they need? More listening on the parts of leaders will give them the answers. We've covered a lot of ground in this conversation. And when you think back to all the different things that we've talked about, and we distill it down to a few things that people in the audience need to pay attention to when they're trying to build this type of organization. What are some of the things that you would advise them to pay particular attention to as they're trying to build an organization that is more focused on the front line versus mm -hmm. the C-suite? I think that number one, listen, know what your folks can do, know what their talents are, know what they're bringing to the party. Not only do you have to know what it is, you have to be able to coordinate it with others on the team. What makes an organization really powerful on the front line, I was working with AT&T one year and one person would turn to the other person and say, I have somebody here who needs an aging specialist and that would be you. Or another person would say, I need someone who really knows about the technical side of, of their products and that would be you. They're very informed about each other and what they can provide and together as a high-performing team, they can always give the customer what they want. And leaders need to know how to make that happen between their team members. If people want to continue the conversation, what's the best way for them to find you? You can always find me on LinkedIn. You can find me at Ingrid Wallace Presents. That's www.ingridwallacepresents.com. I appreciate you hanging out with us, Ingrid. When I think about all the different things that we covered, there's a couple of things that stand out that I think are particularly important when it comes to executing this well. One, I think if we're looking at shifting mindsets and shifting, shifting the way that we look at this type of leadership, it starts with leaders being able to be comfortable with saying that they don't know. There is a myth or at least a, a belief that leaders slash bosses are supposed to be experts across any number of different things. And that's not the job. The job of a good leader is to create space for their people to shine. And that requires you to step back from being the one that's the arbiter of all the truth that exists within your organization. If you want to build this sort of organization, it requires you to step back and, and, and admit to things that you don't know. But the other thing that you mentioned, and it happened pretty late in the conversation, is the concept of obsession. So if you're obsessed with being an effective leader, if you're obsessed with building a high performance team, that requires you to focus on the growth of your people versus the growth of your title. Because right. if you're focused only on the growth of your title, you're not focusing in the right area and it's going to lead you down a path where you're not getting the results that you want. And it's likely because you're not really putting first things first in terms of your prioritization. For those of you who have been listening to the conversation, let us know what you thought of it. Make sure you join the HR Impact community and then tune in next time where we will have another great leader joining us to share with us the game-changing realizations that they had to build a high-performing team. Thanks for listening to this episode of the HR Impact Show. We hope you liked the conversation. Don't forget to continue supporting us by joining the HR Impact community. You can find the community at www.engagerocket.co slash HR Impact. Tune in next time where we'll have another guest who's going to share with us the game-changing insights that help them build high-performing teams.